Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. Today I am joined by James Brown, who is the CEO of the Space Industry Association of Australia. And James is a national security and public policy expert. He has worked at the Lowy Institute for International Policy, the US Studies Centre, and he's currently chair, as well as being CEO of the Space Industry Association, he's chair of Invictus Australia. Welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, James. Hello. Thanks for having me along. Oh, it's great to have you on. And uh, today we are going to talk about the space industry in Australia. And the reason why we got you on was there is a, an anniversary coming up on the 26th of February, 62nd anniversary of an agreement between the United States and Australia that established a partnership to build several specialised space tracking stations in Australia that, of course, was the really the precursor to a whole lot of really exciting space things that happened in the, in the 60s. And, of course, for those of you familiar with The Dish the movie I think from about 10 or so years ago that made famous or re-famous the Apollo 11 moon landing and the role that Australia played in televising that around the globe. This agreement between the US and Australia was really important. So very exciting to talk to, to you, James, about this industry. I wanted to start off by asking you, when did Australia become involved in the space industry? I'm assuming a bit before 1960. Even though it seems new and exciting at the moment, it's been around a long time, hasn't it? It has, and, and you know, we're at an inflection point now. But Australia was either the fourth or the seventh country to put a satellite into orbit around the planet, depending on who you ask. We were pretty involved in the early stages towards the end of the 1950s. And... There were two drivers for that, both quite different from each other. The first was, of course, the Cold War, strategic nuclear development, testing of ballistic missile technology led by the UK and the US, and for a bunch of reasons, mostly to do with tracking missile launches and having the space to do missile launches, Australia was an ideal partner for space activities. But the other one was also the 1957 International Geophysical Year, which was uh, a group of scientists who came together with the UN to really highlight the role of space in advancing humanity. And Australia was lucky enough to have uh, someone called David Forbes Martin, who was really a leader at the UN in looking at the uses of space for, for environmental monitoring, for space science and for radio astronomy particularly. So those two things led Australia to be forefront of space technology in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. Um, and of course, we saw rockets launched from Woomera, we saw um, tracking dishes set up. So you had quite a big workforce in Australia working on space stuff. 
Yeah, and and one of the, I guess, the leading institutions when it came to space was the the CSIRO, wasn't it? Although it was it was known by a different name initially, I think it wasn't always the CSIRO, but um, that's right. It was the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, which is the forerunner to the CSIRO. Um, Not quite as catchy. No, no. (laughs) At the end of the Second World War, when the UK started to work on its, um, I think it was its new secret weapon known as radar, Australia also wanted to get involved in in that that technology, which, um, yeah, so even back in the 1940s, we were... We were deep in the space race, at least in terms of the military applications, but also the agricultural and geographical applications as well. So it's exciting, exciting time. I wanted to ask you, and it, I mean, it's it's not necessarily the most important development in our in our space journey, but it's certainly the most famous about the Parkes Telescope. Can you tell us the story of of Parkes? <laughs> So I have to make a, a two confessions to you. One is I've never watched the dish the whole way through, which really? I feel like is I think I did. It's pretty. <laughs> it's it's both un-Australian and completely inappropriate for the CEO of the Space Industry Association. I've watched it in different chunks. Homework um, for this weekend, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I had to go and look up the origins of Parks. So Parks was um, funded in in the main by grants from the Rockefeller Corporation and the, and the Carnegie Foundation in the US. So for a bunch of reasons, they had to spend money on radio astronomy and on science, but they needed to spend it in a Commonwealth country, not in uh, the US. So effectively, they, they came to Australia and said, look, we'd be happy to fund this telescope, but we need you to do some matching funding. And that's what drove the government to invest in, in the parks uh, radio astronomy dish. And you know, what an investment it was. I mean, they that, that still operates today. So there's a friend of mine who at the moment is logging on for a couple of hours each night um, from his bedroom in Balmain and he pulls out his laptop and gets to control the dish for a couple of hours oh, and look really? around the sky looking for different things. Yeah, oh, and yeah. it's still very active in space science and astronomy. And, uh, and of course, it played that pivotal role in the moon landing. Uh, so... I mean, not only that that dish, but also the Honeysuckle Creek facility. Uh, you had quite a big NASA team here to support that. Uh, and you still have, uh, you know, a lot of NASA tracking operations done in Australia today. So near where I live in Paddington in Sydney, the telephone exchange is a little plaque that talks about the team of five NASA video technicians who were hosted there in 1969 to make sure that the images of the, of the moon landing got through. But that, you know, that, that kind of... Australia still plays that really important role. If you're operating in space, you need a global tracking network. And where you know where is better in the southern hemisphere to put your tracking station than Australia? Mm. And that's why NASA still operates here today. Do you know why the location in Parks, which is in New South Wales, I think it's just uh, outside of Orange, um, why was Parks chosen particularly? I've never been to Parks. Well, you need have to go well, one day. <laughs> you, you've got to you've got to get there for the Elvis festival. I think is the is the is the big draw card other than the dish. The dish but, and um, El- the Elvis festival, two very good reasons to go. <laughs> <laughs> the um, 
So I, look, I think like like most of these sites, they needed somewhere that was in a, a radio-free zone, in a dark zone, and, and, and in those days, parks ticked that box. They needed it to be close to a workforce, uh, and then you know they needed it to be at the right latitude and longitude to fit in with the rest of their network. So um, th- those were the reasons it ended up in parks. Uh, you know, these days, a lot of the tracking assets, both for the US for NASA, for DOD, for satellite communications companies, for the European Space Agency, they all end up over in Western Australia, mostly because it's remote. Yeah, and there's, yeah, it's it's a dark zone, as you said. Um, can you tell me about this private funding? Because I think this is something people wouldn't necessarily realise, that the DISH in parks was only partly funded by the Australian government and, as you said before, was funded largely by the Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. Is it common for uh, investments in space technology to come from the private sector? I mean, of course, you know, we have in our minds the uh, the, the US billionaires and or Israeli billionaires who are funding their own passion projects into space with Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos. And, and of course, um, Richard Branson, so a, Br- a British billionaire too. So, so there's obviously a lot of private investment these days. But but back in the the 1960s and and 50s, it was interesting that these foundations, US foundations too, were putting so much money into a, a space asset in, as you said, a Commonwealth country. Yeah, I think it was less common in the 60s. I mean, most of it was coming from the government and military, but private investment in space is really significant at the moment. And to put the shingle out, um, the Australian space industry is looking for its founding billionaire. So if there's one listening to your podcast, uh, they should absolutely uh, feel free to get in touch and you know, don't withhold <laughs> themselves from the opportunity of playing a founding role in the Australian space industry. But but space has been a government endeavour mostly because, and it's often been a military endeavour because it's so expensive. Yeah. And, the timelines are so long. So, I mean, to develop, in the old days, developing a rocket or a satellite from design to, to launch, it could be five to ten years and uh, involve thousands of people, complicated supply chains, big chunks of real estate. So only governments were really in a position to do that. And and governments are the big customer for space, whether it's defence, intelligence or academic research or um meteorological data i mean today most of the information that goes into your weather forecast comes off a satellite all of that you know is things that government do but what we've seen in the last or really in the last 10 years is huge amounts of private investment in space so elon musk spacex um, that that kind of investment but you're, you're starting to see now in australia investors backing space companies so we've had uh, two companies, um, Gilmore Space Technologies and, and Fleet, who've received uh, large amounts of funding from super funds, from, from uh, venture capital, private equity. So it's not all government. But it, it's amazing to think that it was really philanthropy that got parks off the ground and US philanthropy at that. Quite extraordinary. Can you tell me about the um, role parks played in the Apollo 11, the moon landing? Um, Because, I mean, those who have seen the dish, obviously not you, um, will remember the slightly kind of Faulty Towers-esque moments that um, the the protagonists um, 
you know, took and all the sort of measures they were taking. I mean, there's probably a bit of dramatisation, let's be honest, in the movie. Um, but, it, but it, look, it was a significant role and, uh, and, 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 you know, I think 600 million people around the world in 1969 were able to watch the moon landing thanks to, thanks to Parks and Honeysuckle Creek. So it's pretty amazing. But, but tell, tell us about how that took place. Look, that bit of the movie I have seen, oh, it's good. fairly accurate. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it was a windy day. There were 100 kilometre per hour gusts. There, there was a real risk to the dish and, and, and the director of that facility had to make the call to to leave it up and operating uh, at, at some risk to the personnel in that facility. Um, the moonwalk did go ahead earlier than planned, so they were surprised by that. But they were splicing the signal between Honeysuckle Creek and Park. So it was capturing those first images from the moon, bringing them back and getting them out. And that sounds like a pretty normal thing today for you or I. And the fact that we were able to do that in the late 60s is just extraordinary. To get it into that, you know, to, to be able to beam it from the moon back to Australia through a cable to the US, just extraordinary. And... You know, the complexity of that mission today still just absolutely astounds me. But Australia played that pivotal role and, you know, Australia still plays that pivotal role today. I mean, um, some of the dishes we have in Australia uh, have helped recover satellites that have sort of got lost, uh, that, that people have lost control of. So it's just as important now as it was then. Yeah, um, quite incredible. And it, it also, Australian tracking stations were also crucial for the Apollo 13 rescue mission, weren't they? Which was also made into a movie. Quite a frightening one, yeah. I must say. <laughs> we should be claiming royalties, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, so look, Australia has been part of, uh, NASA has a communications network around the planet for its manned missions. Um, and Australia has been part of that for a long time. So you know, we, we, we've played that role. We played that role for Apollo 13. We, we've played that role for some of the unmanned sort of interplanetary missions as well through the deep state space tracking network um, dishes down at Tindin Villa, just outside of Canberra. And, you know, that that's, that's hard work, finding those spacecraft, getting the signals, keeping the signals, uh, that, that all takes expertise. Yeah. Do you think the um, Australian government's early investment I guess particularly in the 50s and 60s were, I mean, you, you could describe it better than me, that, ten, that Cold War tension. There was obviously the huge competition between the US and, and Russia and with the USSR, you know, the race to the moon and, and, you know, didn't the US put the dog up into the, to space first? And <laughs> um, that, so, you know, obviously Australia has an alliance with the United States, um, was equally concerned about the threat of, of international communism and, and how it might spread down through Asia and into Australia and how that would destabilise the free world. How do you think those tensions and that, that space race played into Australian decision-making around um, investing in the, the facilities around, around Australia? Oh, enormously. I mean, enormously significant in those decisions. Um, Sputnik in 1957 in October, that really spurred a lot of thinking in Australia was that the dog? around how to... Uh, that was the satellite. I think oh, the satellite. The dog was, the dog was Leica. I can't remember what year that was, but it was, you know, not, not long after. 
<laughs> uh, that was that was the Russians that got that one away. Um, the uh, so, did, so did that, the US so that, ever put a dog into space, or they, they skipped that? You are really testing me here. <laughs> I think uh, maybe they maybe they did a monkey. Someone did a monkey. I'm not oh, sure, okay. but. Yeah, it's monkeys and dogs. I haven't. I'm focusing on the humans. It's kind of it's good. You know, that's it's good. my beat. Priorities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one's put a chicken in space, as far as I know. That mm. might be an opportunity. Mm. The UK was thinking a lot around how do we build our missile technology? How do we build our radar technology? How do we um, launch satellites into orbit? Uh, so that that drove them to start working with other European countries in Australia to develop an organisation that could launch satellites into space. And that was that was how you ended up with thousands of British technicians in Woomera. Uh, and the US, of course, was, was launching satellites and trying to monitor what the USSR was doing, um, needed Australia for that purpose as well. So hugely significant. A lot of nuclear theory was driving some of those early space scientific developments. You know, all the rocket technology that went into the Apollo program Werner von Braun and his team, they were they were taken uh, out of Germany at the end of the Second World War and resettled in Alabama. So all of this had its origins in that sort of global conflict and strategy space. But having said that, you know, there was still that very strong scientific streak running through it all of people who wanted to get out into the universe and who wanted to be exploring beyond Earth and who wanted to be kind of working out where we'd come from by looking up at the night sky. So you know, those two communities kind of sitting alongside each other, working together, um, is what got us to, to where we were in the 1960s. But, James, in terms of the organisation of the space activities in Australia, we didn't have a, um Australian Space Agency until very recently. There was a lot of, of lobbying for one over the years. And, um, I, look, I recall... As a diplomat, Australian diplomat in Japan, it was incredibly difficult when we were talking about cooperation on space issues with the Japanese. It was incredibly difficult to actually even navigate our own bureaucracy because we didn't have uh, a space agency. We, you know, did we go to the industry? Industry? Did we go to defence? Um, you know, where did you? Who did you speak to? And and you know, a lot of bureaucrats scratching their heads. Obviously, the United States has NASA. How did Australia? up until very recently, how did it organise itself around its space activities? Uh, not, not very well at all. So we, <laughs> um, you know, my organisation has been around for about 30 years. It was run by volunteers. Um, people would knock on our door thinking we were the space agency and uh, we'd have to tell them, no, the, the government doesn't have one. Uh, and so, you know, that that's the challenge for, that was a challenge for a long time. We were very lucky in 2017 that the, the government committed to a, a space agency, um, put the shingle out uh, and invested some money in building that staff. That, that three-year pilot program has been a raging success. Before then, we'd had a space office in the early 1990s, which had stood up for a few years and then disappeared. We had a, a space strategy that was... Uh, developed by the government in 2013, went into cabinet as the Australian space strategy. People didn't think it would be taken very seriously, the idea that Australia would have a space strategy. So it came out and it was called the Australian Space Utilisation Policy. Mm, uh, sexy. So there was this, <laughs> yeah, 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 very sexy. Uh, and, it, and it sort of, you know, the, so there was this real cringe about space. People just didn't take it very seriously. It was a bit of a giggle, the idea of having space. 
Meanwhile, you know, Australian scientists and researchers are in the top 10 most cited space papers every year. We're doing excellent work with CSIRO. And there were lots of people in the industry who were trying to, to get things off the ground, but really struggled. I mean, now that we've, one of the one of the space companies I represent that just closed a $62 million investment round basically said, without a space agency, that never would have happened. People Is that right? Confident. Yeah. Yeah, people, people overseas in here wouldn't have had the confidence to invest in what we're doing. Um, without the government having set up an Australian space agency. But it's quite extraordinary that despite not having a space agency, some sort of national government-run coordinating mechanism, we still were able to have such a successful industry. You know, that just shows the um, the fantastic efforts of private enterprise and, and, and scientists to make it happen. Meanwhile, we, despite not having a space agency, we did have a significant relationship obviously with with NASA I'd, I'd love to hear about a bit more about the deep space probes um, that sounds very exciting um, <laughs> <laughs> that NASA has here and and how they've helped the exploration of the solar solar system well I mean NASA sent out uh, a whole bunch of interplanetary missions over the last 20 years or so um, you know the Voyager mission some of the missions it's done up to Mars recently, and we've got uh, a series of, of NASA-funded and, and CSIRO-funded uh, tracking dishes that sit about 40 minutes south of Canberra that you know are critical to those missions. They're controlling some of those spacecraft through those dishes. They're monitoring their activities through those dishes, and it's it's quite amazing. In fact, my neighbour here um, has just come back from the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in, in um, California. And during lockdown, was sort of sitting at home controlling the Perseverance rover on Mars. Oh, amazing! Um, through through a laptop, so it's kind <laughs> of so um, you know the ability to have that signal to beam it out to the edge of the solar system um, reliably, and to be able to hand off sort of control or tracking with other ground stations in the US and in Europe. Um, Australia does that so well, and we've done that so well for such a long time, and. I mean, Australia uh, is one of the only parts of the planet where you can look up and see all of the different uh, GPS constellations. So the the Russian, the Chinese, the American, uh, the European, um, you can see them all from Australia. That's extraordinary. And and what are we learning from these deep space missions then, James? Um, Because no doubt... They're quite expensive, so <laughs> I mean, aside from curiosity about Mars and <laughs> are there Martians? Could we live there? Uh, is it is it Planet B? <laughs> as uh, as some some in our community question. <laughs> yeah, no. Look, I'm, I mean, beyond kind of the real estate play, we're coming to grips with the most basic elements of science. So. How do different materials react? How were they formed? Um, you know, where do they come from? Where do we come from? All those sorts of basic questions. You know, so a, a mission to, to Venus to look at phosgene gas, you know, that tells us more about how the elements operate here on Earth, what we can do with them, how we can operate. Um, materials react differently in space. And a lot of the experiments, not, not on the interplanetary missions, but on the International Space Station are around how do materials react differently in space in zero gravity conditions and, and what can we do for that? And, and that has applications for agriculture, for medicine, all sorts of things. 
And the challenge of doing these missions leads to uh, extraordinary innovations here. So, I mean, we're still we're still commercialising technology from the Apollo 11 missions. I mean, microwave technology came out of the, you know, microwave ovens basically were a byproduct of the Apollo 11 missions. It's amazing. Um, you know, the yeah. fasteners and composite materials and titanium and all, you know, spacesuit materials, all that kind of stuff, because you have to operate so far from Earth in such a hostile environment, it drives you to innovate and to develop new ways to solve these problems uh, and that eventually has commercial applications here on Earth. I mean, the wireless wearable health technology that we're all enjoying now, your Fitbit, that is a direct byproduct of the monitoring instruments that we put on the astronauts that flew to the moon in 1969. Really? So, oh, I'm wearing a Fitbit right now, so I will have extra <laughs> appreciation for it and the, the benefits of our association with NASA. But I did want to ask you, what what do you see as – you've obviously explained some of the amazing things that NASA is doing with Australia in terms of the, the deep space probes and, and all the sort of t- scientific advancements that come from that – and understanding, but but what are the the benefits as you see them from Australia's very deep relationship with NASA? Enormous benefits. I mean, um, NASA is what a twenty four billion dollar a year organisation now, doing all sorts of amazing things. Uh, we get meteorological data, we get climate monitoring and assessment data uh, from from NASA. We basically have the planet made visible to us by NASA. Um, you know, you look at that that earthquake that took place off Tonga uh, yeah. earlier this year, you know, th- that incredible imagery of, of that volcano, sorry, the volcano erupting uh, in Tonga came from space. So it's, mm. that, it's that kind of accessibility that we see. There's deep scientific cooperation with NASA across a, a whole heap of fronts. Um, and this year, for example, we're going to see NASA launching small rockets uh, out of the Northern Territory and it's the first time that they've ever contracted a launch site outside of the US. Is that right? Um, to fire their own rockets, yeah. And, yeah. and that'll happen this year. Uh, so that's that's just, you know there's a NASA team up in Arnhem Land at the moment working um, working that mission. So we're also engaged in uh, working with NASA to put an Australian lunar rover on the moon in 2025. That was announced last year. Uh, there are a whole bunch of teams that I'm working with at the moment that are putting together solutions for that. NASA's going to give us a ride on their rocket um, to get the rover up to the moon and get it landed. So, uh, And that is driving some really interesting collaborations here between, uh, for example, space companies and mining companies who who have pretty good technology for operating vehicles and trains remotely. Uh, So there's all sorts of things that are coming out of that relationship with NASA. And what will the lunar rover, Australian lunar rover, next year seek to achieve? So it will it will pick up some Rocks. regoliths, some lunar, lunar rock, and it will move it from one part of the moon <laughs> to another part of the moon. Um, so th- this is all about uh, you know humankind's return to the moon, uh, which is happening under the Artemis program and, and the US um, moon to Mars missions. It's all about being able to utilize the resources on the moon uh, because if you can launch a rocket from the moon to Mars, you're saving so much on fuel. You've got much less gravity. So the idea is we get back to the moon and we, we start to construct habitats there and and then we can uh, develop launch sites there that will make it much easier and, and much cheaper to get to Mars. That's pretty Australia's exciting. Huge, yeah. 
But we've got a we've got a huge amount of expertise in this. I mean, CSIRO is working on how to turn moon rock into rocket fuel. One of our life members, um, the late Professor O'Brien in, in Western Australia, uh, he was the guy that helped uh, the Apollo missions deal with lunar dust, right? Because because moon dust gets on everything and it can be quite damaging to equipment and to humans. And and he did some pioneering work for NASA, for NASA that supported the Apollo missions on, on dealing with moon dust. So we've got that expertise. We're building it, you know, putting a rover on the moon is hard, really hard. The Israelis are about to do their second go at, at landing on the moon. Their first one came so close, but was, was almost unsuccessful. This is one of the hardest missions you can do and, We've got teams working on that right now. And what's the likelihood of it being successful? Do they have a, a percentage expectation? I don't know what the percentage is, <laughs> but, but you know the, the the expectations are pretty high. Yeah. Um, look, every, everything in space is hard. You know, yeah. Launching rockets, you have huge failure rates. We saw the first four SpaceX rockets blew up on the launch pad. So th- this is a big mission. We'll have the smartest people in the country working on it. Uh, the risks of failure are still very, very high. But, you know, I'm really looking forward to, in 2025, watching that Australian package packed into the NASA rocket, whatever, whichever rocket they're using at that point, watching, you know, young Australian engineering graduates um, here in Australia controlling that spacecraft and, and, and putting it down on the moon's surface. That'll be a really exciting moment for our country, I think. It will be. It'll be super exciting. And and what's the time frame then for building facilities on the moon? Is that a sort of 10-year, 20-year, 50-year time frame? I know in space things don't move as, as fast as, you know, building a quarantine facility in Toowoomba does. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be a little later than that, but it'll happen in our lifetimes. Oh, exciting. So, Good. I mean, you, yeah. you are seeing, you know, there are two new space stations, for example, being built at the moment, one by the Chinese, one by a private American company. You'll see those in the next couple of years in orbit. In fact, the Chinese one is already being constructed in orbit at the moment. And is this to um, replace the International Space Station? Because that's reaching the end of its um, life, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's to augment that. So it'll do different things to the International Space Station. You, you will see people working on the moon um, within our lifetime. Um, you know, the, the idea, if we see, if SpaceX's Starship works as planned, that huge rocket that they're putting together in, in Texas, um, that will drive the cost of launch so low um, that it will be approachable for people who aren't sort of mega billionaires to go into space and it'll be necessary for people who aren't mega billionaires to go into space because there'll be jobs to do will you go um, do you think james would i go into space (laughs) i don't know i get asked this a lot and i go backwards and forwards i mean i would i would love to do it um but strapping yourself to um you know hundreds of thousands of kilograms of high explosive fuel is um (laughs) is not a decision you want to take lightly so I'm not the most technical guy, so I'm not sure you want me at the controls of anything in space. But, look, I think if I got the opportunity to go up there for a short trip, I'd take it. A joyride. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think I would. I think I'm happy on Earth. <laughs> happy to hear about it. Happy to see the, uh, the images via parks. <laughs> but, James, a big, a big issue, and I, I recall this being a, a major issue um, when I was involved in talks with the, the Japanese officials, 
particularly JAXA, of course, the Japanese Space Agency, about the big issue facing all um, countries who have interest in space, which is all countries, let's be honest, is um, the amount of space junk up there that's increasing lots of sort of satellites that, that, you know, reach the end of their useful life and just float around there clogging clogging the skies is that something that the australian space industry is is concerned about and if so what what are they doing about it is there anything we can do about it it's a huge problem uh not not only space junk but the number of constellations we call them mega constellations that are going into orbit at the moment so you've got about four thousand satellites in orbit in 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 low earth orbit uh, which is about 400 kilometers um from from earth Half of those have been launched in the last two years. Wow. It's ex- it's expected that within the next seven years, you'll see that number grow to 100,000 satellites in space. Half of those are coming from Elon Musk's Starlink constellation, which provides broadband internet. So the amount of things bumping around in space before you even get to the space junk is exponentially different to, to you know where we've been for the last 10 years or so. Already we've had um, incidents where, you know, satellites have had to manoeuvre to avoid each other. And there's no rules for that, right? No, like it, it's if unregulated. You're a, if you're at sea, yeah. no, it's completely wild west. If you're at sea, it's very clear who manoeuvres to avoid each other. In space, there are no rules. And, you know, you don't want to be the first to manoeuvre because you're burning gas and you're shortening the lifespan of your asset, which means less money for your customers, right? So so is it a game of um, chicken then? Is it a two, if satellites are approaching each other, it's who's going who's gonna to move first out of the way? <laughs> absolutely. Chicken's at 1,000 kilometres per hour. And, Yikes, yeah. Um, and some of these systems are autonomous, so you don't really know how, you know, they're reacting without any human involvement. You don't really know how they're going to operate. And there's, a, there's heaps of space junk, I mean, and, and even more. I mean, we saw uh, late last year Russia uh, blow up one of its own satellites, uh, creating thousands of pieces of new space junk. Uh, its own cosmonauts in the International Space Station didn't know that Russia was going to do it and had to get into their escape suits and, and be ready to, to, you know, launch the, the escape pod and come back to Earth because of the amount of destruction caused. So it's a real issue. From mm. Australia's point of view, we've got some fascinating technology here that helps us deal with that in two ways. We've got uh, great radars that help us do surveillance of space so we can see what's up there and plot where it is. Uh, there's a company called um, Leo Labs here that, that, that you know does all the calculations to work out when things are going to bump into each other. Um, we've got new radars going in Western Australia that, you know, will look up and track all this stuff and we've got the kind of computer systems to plot it all out and predict where things are going to be. Um, there's a couple of companies that have got technology to uh, shoot pieces of space junk and bring them down out of orbit, right. <laughs> which sounds pretty crazy, but effectively um, you use a laser to... Uh, roughen up the side of a bit of space junk floating around and that changes its orbit and it can bring it down into the atmosphere where it burns up. So, you know, you pulse a laser and you, you help kind of clean up the clean up the skies. But all of this is expensive yes. and there's no international sort of regulatory body that says you must clean up your own space junk. So, I mean, this weekend we're about to see um, a, a, a rocket 
slam into the moon that somebody fired off and, you know, that they lost control of. Yeah, so tell me about this. It was reported the other day that it was going to be landing on the dark side of the moon, isn't it? So we, we won't be able to see it from Earth. But it sounds a bit troubling, even though the experts are downplaying the risk. You know, you worry that the moon might be a bit damaged. <laughs> Don't want it to go off course. <laughs> Yeah, look, and you know, you don't. You, we we don't want to be polluting the moon. We kind of no. want to. We want to take care of it. Um, but yeah, look, this is a real issue. Uh, you know, satellites that have been up in orbit, um, when they when they come to the end of their life and they run out of fuel, they push them off into graveyard orbits out in deep space. Um, what they're finding now is that it's kind of like you know, currents in the ocean. Um, sometimes. They come back. The rubbish comes back. <laughs> so there's some there's some old satellites um, that were sort of pushed off into deep space 20 years ago that are going to start coming back into um, into the relevant orbit. So there's a there's a lot to be done. There's a lot of coordination, and the, you know these are engineers and scientists, so they coordinate with each other. Um, but sometimes we don't even know who's doing what up in space. You know, um, China, for example, doesn't declare any of its satellites or tell us where they are or what they're doing, even their, even a lot of their commercial satellites. So um, the and, systems aren't quite in place to manage this. And, and, and that, of course, that context just shows how monumentally difficult it would be to establish some sort of international overarching regulatory body or regulatory system to 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 help smooth the you know, use of satellites and coordinate the the launching of satellites and and coordinate the space junk issue too. Um, it it will be with all the geopolitical tensions just here on Earth. Then overlay that into to space. <laughs> How to get Russia, China, US its allies, Australia, UK, Europe, to, uh, to agree on, on any regulation in, a, in an area where there's been none too. Um, it will be a real challenge. And, um, but, but one that surely we have to deal with because, you know, as you say, if there are, we're going from 400 satellites to thousands of satellites in a few short years, that's going to become an even bigger issue surely. Enormously, and look, there are some steps to to bring together countries to discuss that. Um, geopolitics in space are intense. Um, military competition in space is intense. I mean, we're seeing satellites launched into orbit that can manoeuvre alongside other satellites and pull them down, or blind them, or dazzle them, or fry their solar cells. Um, that's happening. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of intelligence activities happening in space. So. It's a very contested environment at the moment in space. Um, defence space budgets are increasing rapidly uh, and the importance of space for our economies, I, I think people are realising, you know, what happens if we lose access to space. So mm. in Australia's case, I mean, if we lose access to space, we don't have weather forecasts, Google Maps goes down, but also power networks go down. Anything that relies on a GPS clock to give it a time signal and that's every computer network in the country potentially goes down yeah. if uh, if we have interruption in space. Yeah, so the, the country it, would literally come to a standstill. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, not, not a single financial transaction could take place because they rely on time signals from space. So uh, there's a lot of thinking about what that means and how we manage that risk. James, I wanted to finish our discussion by asking you about the square kilometre array. So um, I was saying to you earlier when I was in Japan we were Australia and Australian government officials, of which I was one, were, were lobbying pretty hard for Australia to get a, a piece of the square kilometre array action, and which we did, which was exciting. But, um, but what, what is it and why is it important and, and why was it important that Australia got in, in on the action? <laughs> it's, uh, look, it's an amazing project that's being run um, by Sarah Pearce, um, who's the, the telescopic director of the Australian Square Kilometre Array. Uh, the, the best way to imagine this facility is if you imagine a bunch of metal Christmas trees, um, each of these little antennas looks like a metal Christmas tree. It's a few metres high and about half a metre wide and it's got lots of dangly bits hanging off it. Uh, there's going to be more than 110,000 of those built and, and put into the ground uh, over in Western Australia. And all of that together will uh, suck radio signals out of the sky uh, and function as a giant telescope. And it will tell us all sorts of things about um, the universe. There's another one in South Africa uh, and the two of them work together and they're coordinated by headquarters in London. This is a big project for Australia. Um, it will significantly boost our expertise in astronomy. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's really fantastic that we're doing it in Western Australia. And, you know, all of these projects, the Square Kilometre Array, the, the James Webb Space Telescope that's just been launched out into an orbit halfway between Earth and the Sun, um, they're, they're going to tell us things that, you know, that will blow your mind um, and give us a much better understanding of, of the very building blocks of science and the universe around us. Wow, it's a very exciting time and um, and you are such a key part of it. So um, it's been wonderful to have you on the Afternoon Light podcast, James, and talking about space industry in Australia and, uh, and I really wish you all the very best for the future and I can't wait to hear the latest developments as they unfold. It sounds like we're in for a very busy few years of space news. It's going to be great and we'll uh, we'll hold you a seat on one of those uh, Australian rockets heading into orbit. <laughs> Thanks. Very kind of you. <laughs> Thanks very much, James. Thanks. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.